There we go. Welcome. Thank you for joining us once again for the Deer Talk Now podcast. I am Dan Schmidt. We really appreciate your support. We'd appreciate it even more if you would just easily like and subscribe uh, wherever you're listening this to. It really helps us get those to you every week, every Thursday, Deer Talk Now. Today, I was going to sing the theme song, but I think I'll embarrass myself because (laughs) I'm talking to an icon, a legend, a hero of mine, somebody who really... I modeled myself after getting into this industry, Dan Small. Dan, thank you for joining us today. Well, Dan, it's a pleasure talking with you. And gosh, don't make my head any bigger than it already is. <laughs> well, um, you're, you're too humble that I can't really say that in front of you, but I want you to know that because uh, you've been doing this for a long time and I've I've followed you ever since. I Well, I, I looked it up. I was a senior in high school when Outdoor Wisconsin first came on. And I've been watching the program ever since then. Fantastic. Well, I get that from a lot of folks. In fact, uh, people with um, grayer beards and less hair than you often say to me, gosh, I've been watching you since I was about that tall. (laughs) I'm not quite that old. Yeah, we went on in the mid-80s and outdoor wisconsin the tv show is no longer in production um and there's a long story behind that that i won't go into but it's related to covid and some other things Uh, but i'm still doing my annual deer hunt wisconsin show which this year was i think the 33rd annual 33rd annual i was going to ask you i was going to ask you about that yeah i think i think 33rd 32nd or third when did you stop doing the regular programs Uh, like two years ago yeah yeah but the archived shows are available online if you go to milwaukeepbs.org you have to become a member which involves paying um i think it's an annual fee a minimal fee of like maybe 30 35 bucks or something like that but then you can access all the old shows if you so if you uh, are so inclined you know, some people do. And that's a, a great thing to do. So I'm going to tell everybody, if you we're national. If you're down in Georgia or Alabama and you say, who is this guy that I'm talking to? Um, if you live in South Dakota, it was Tony Dean. If you live in Minnesota, it was Babe Winkleman. If you live in Michigan, it was Fred Trost. Pennsylvania was Don Jake, D- Jacobs. And in Wisconsin, it was Dan Small. That's the way I look at it. It's um, your presence over the past 40 years has been so ingrained in my life because I've been a lifelong Wisconsinite, but I know that it has transcended that in the fact that now you you do your podcast, uh, people have been exposed to your views. And one thing that um, I want to get to, because you've done that deer hunt Wisconsin, this was what I was going to lead off with. So this would have been, I believe it was either 85 or 86, somewhere in there. And my Dad and brothers, they all always hunted up in um, Price County, up by Catawba, Lady Smith. You know where those places are. And I couldn't go that one fall. And I wanted to go by myself. And so I went by myself, and I didn't actually shoot the deer. A guy on the land shot this deer. I tagged it, which was legal. And I did not know how to field dress it. And I had just watched, it was a red bearded version of you (laughs) field dressing a deer and i had put a ziploc bag in my jacket because you said oh you take the ziploc bag and you put the heart in there and you save it and i'm like i'm gonna do that i'm gonna impress my dad (laughs) well now this is where the story turns kind of odd is 
flash forward from November gun season to the next November. I went down into our basement. We used to get the orange jackets out, you know, hang them on the wash line a week before the de-season, you know, to descent them. And I felt something in there. Oh, no. <laughs> and it was liquid form. Oh. And it had not leaked out and it had not permeated that bag, but that deer heart was still in that orange jacket. Oh, my God. Yes. <clears throat> and my mom just about lost it. She said, that jacket is not coming back in the house. But it didn't smell. But I, that's how I learned. That's what I learned is like, and I remember, I, I remember my dad coming home and was one of my crowning moments as a deer hunter. He he got home and the deer was still hanging from our wash line pole, and he said, "Boy, you did a really good job on field dressing that deer. How did you how did you learn how to do that?" And I said, "Well, this guy on TV he showed you how to do it." And uh, so that was that's my story. That that was my story about that had to be about 80, 85 or eighty six somewhere back in there. That is a great story, Dan. I, I have heard similar stories. You know, we produced a series of videos that we called Field to Feast. Yep. And it was um, a combination of a hunt and then field dressing and then cooking with two or three or more recipes. The first one was the deer show, the venison. And then we did um, upland birds. Uh, I think we did rough grouse, pheasant. We did waterfowl. And uh, small game, rabbit and squirrel. And the deer, I'll tell you the backstory on the deer Venice, uh, the deer video. Um, we had everything that we needed, except we needed a deer for me to field dress. And I was coming home. I lived in Cedarburg, at the, or just uh, uh, between Cedarburg and Grafton at the time. And I was coming home one night. And I see taillights up ahead on uh, 43, and I pull over behind them because I started seeing car parts. I thought, oh, somebody had an accident or hit a deer. And sure enough, there was this buck uh, lying on the road, and then a woman um, very uh, rattled and uh, in a police car. And a short, uh, short story uh, to wrap that up is she didn't want the deer, and I said, I, I'll take it. And... Uh, back then, you had to get a tag, so the officer tagged it for me. I took it home, and that's the deer we field dressed. That's the deer you used. Hey, I called. I called the uh, TV station. I said, "Hey, I got a deer," and uh, they came out. And the, the antlers, one antler was loose, and so we taped it back on. And so when I'm holding, we did not uh, show that in the video. We kind of, uh, you know, avoided the head. But when I'm holding that deer for the picture and it wasn't a very big deer but it was a you know a modest fork buck a six-pointer maybe i'm holding one antler in place so that it doesn't wobble like that so and don johnson whom you may yep, remember yep. uh the outdoor writer for the Legend, Sentinel, yep. he told me uh one time he said how did you field dress that deer and i didn't put the gloves on that we all wear now um, he said, how'd you feel dress that deer without getting blood all over you? Well, and then I told him the story. It had been, you know, killed the night before. And I guess the blood all drained out. I, I don't remember whether the blood was in the chest cavity or what. But, you know, as luck would have it, that deer was not badly beaten up. That's what I was going to ask, because I've done three of them in my life and I will never do another one. Uh, a roadkill. Well, I've done three this year and they were all good. Really? Um, Oh, yeah. You you got to, you know, you take your chances because you can't tell how badly beaten up it is, you know, until you get the hide off. 
but I hit one um, in the rump and um, a friend hit one in the head. And I can't remember where the third one came from. Oh, we picked it up. We went up north for the four day antler season back in November or in December. And uh, I went up a day early and the, the fellow who uh, uh, works with us here on the farm came up the next day and he took a different route and he was coming um, east on Highway 2 there between Ino and uh, Benoit, if you know where that, know is. that is. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I bet you do. And he, when he got to our, our spot where we hunt uh, on the land my son manages now, he said, I, I passed a fresh roadkill. And John, my son, said, why don't you go get it? It's a free deer. Well, we went and got it and uh, dressed it later that night. It was still warm. Believe oh my it or gosh. Not. Wow. Yeah. And I hung it for a while. We dressed it out. I hung it for a while, cut it up. And that is some of the tastiest venison I've had in a long time. So uh, don't, um, you, you take your chances when you open a, a deer that was road killed, but <laughs> don't, don't think they're all going to be bad because <laughs> there's a tip can't... that he just taught me after all these years, because I've done three of them. And I will tell you the nastiest things it was like, a bomb was detonated on the inside and there was nothing that was salvageable. And I, we could, <laughs> could tell you those stories would be too, too gross to repeat here, but that's a good tip. I never really even thought of that. I never thought like, well, the the first one I thought was like, Oh, this thing was hitting the head. It looks fine. And Oh gosh, no, it was just, it was horrible, terrible. But uh, th- there's some advice for you. Don't, don't dismiss it. Oh, you, like you said, it's a gamble, but maybe uh, you might, might be able to, at least get a backstrap or something out of it. Yeah, exactly. And the law in Wisconsin requires you to take the whole deer. You can't gut it on the side of the road, right. which we used to do. Right. Um, so, and my, my rule is if I open it up and the gut's not busted, um, that's a good sign. You may lose some meat, uh, you know, from bruising, but you can grind that up for a burger or, you know, we have a Sausage. cat that loves venison. And so anything that we don't eat, I grind up and call it cat food. Toby well, eats well. And that's good. And that's another thing that Dan and I uh, share in common is um, you, I I don't want to say live off the land, but um, very um, judicious with growing vegetables and, you know, harvesting wild game and and, and things like that. And that's that's kind of the reason, I mean, when I got into it, I saw other people doing it. We did it growing up. But uh, tell the listeners about that. Like, I know you've done it your whole life. And I know that's it's it's part of your lifestyle. It is, Dan. And, you know, we moved to a small farm in Vernon County, which is in the southwest corner of Wisconsin in what's known, <clears throat> excuse me, what's known as the Driftless area, yep. which is where the glaciers didn't get to back in, you know, 10,000 years ago. And that's southwest Wisconsin, southeast Minnesota, northwest Illinois, northeast Iowa, right in that corner. You know that, but other viewers and listeners might not. And it's only, gosh, we got 10 acres here, but um, half of it is hilly and can't do much with it. We've got sheep on pasture. We've got dairy goats in the barn, and we've got 75 chickens that run wherever they want to go. And in fact, um, Ozzy, the fellow who found the the roadkill, is uh, butchering a rooster right now for tonight. We try to cull the young uh, birds, the young roosters, uh, and then keep the hens for egg laying. 
And 75 is really too many. We can handle about 50, but um, they they just keep making babies, and you know we <laughs> we can only eat so many. 75 chickens. You must be rolling in money now with egg prices. Well, <laughs> I've got you know, I'm they, down to three, so I, I'm only getting a couple eggs, you know. But uh, well, seven. they shut down they shut down production in the winter. The young birds are starting right. to lay now. And the older birds molted in the fall, and they are—they must be starting to come back online because we're getting oh, dozen and a half eggs a day now. And in a good part of the season, we're getting three or four dozen a day, you know. And right. yeah, we do sell them to friends um, uh, who tell us, you know, your eggs are better than what we buy in the store at the co-op because our birds are literally free range. I mean, right. they have a coop where they go in at night. But then they go out and eat bugs and uh, eat everything else they find, um, and uh, they're they're basically feral, is what they are, with a with a home roost to come back to every night. Yeah. That's so that I mean, we do the we do uh, livestock, uh, yeah, but then my wife grows squash, and she has been breeding squash, uh, winter squash, for probably twenty years. She hand pollinates and she's trying to develop strains of squash that will keep over the the winter and into the next year and uh, sweet tasting and long storing. And her goal at one point was to get naked seed squash. That is a squash seed that doesn't have an outer shell. Apparently there's a variety that does that, but she wanted to combine all those. Well, she's got the first two parts down pretty good. But they haven't come up with a naked seed thing yet. But um, but we grow, we eat squash two or three times a day. We've got the winter squash stored in just about every room in the house, and <laughs> we eat it as it starts to go bad. If you get a soft spot on on one, you know you go, oh, okay, we're gonna have to cut that off and eat that one tonight. Um, we've got a root cellar where we store um, carrots. We grew okra. Uh, not as well this past year, but in some years we do well with the okra. We've got a hoop house um, that is uh, kind of a, a separate greenhouse. You know, it's a plastic top on a on a large uh, hoop frame that uh, sits on that's anchored in the ground so it won't blow away in high winds. And we grow we grow beans and peas and okra and carrots and chard and kale and things like that in there. And then come fall and winter, I hang deer in there and we, you know, we process them inside, inside that, that shelter. It's not uh, heated, but it's, it's a lot. It's better than more being comfortable than, than doing it outside, which I used to do. I just don't have the room. I don't, I have a garage, but it's full of junk. You yeah. know, and, <laughs> That's everybody's, I think. Yeah. So, so that, that's kind of what we do. Yeah. That's, which is awesome. And, and I think it's it's something that everybody, even, you know, as a deer hunter, you evolve into doing other things. And that's what I found with myself. But we're going to talk, let's, let's talk about deer because you have a unique perspective, especially on this state. And I think, um, like I said, that will give people an idea of where we've come from as a community. Um, I know that you were in northern Wisconsin for about 25 years as a professor, and you've seen that, and especially your work with the TV show, but you've seen this region's deer population go from next to nothing to boom 
so a little bit of a bust. Where are we now? But I, what I want to ask before that is, what was deer hunting like when, and I know you're a transplant, but what was it like in the Northwoods, say, 40 years ago when you first, when you first were getting into this? That's a good question. Um, the land that we now hunt, I've owned parts of it and we've added to it. Uh, my son is uh, managing 120 acres up there now. We've owned that for almost 50 years, starting with 40 acres and, and growing. And I hunted it in 1975. That was the first year I uh, that we moved onto that place. And uh, opening day, we had a foot and a half of snow, which is rare, but it happens. And a little spike walked under my tree and I said, hello, goodbye. And, you know, put him down. And that was the only deer hunting I did that year. Uh, a couple of years before that, before I moved uh, to the farm, I hunted uh, the National Forest, Shawamigan National Forest, and I killed one deer bow hunting. Uh, and, and that was in the early 70s, 72, I think. It was a doe, a fawn, and I was hunting on a railroad track uh, grade down by the White River with a friend. And this doe jumped, uh, this fawn jumped onto the track 10 yards ahead of me. We were walking to where we were going to take our stands. And I drew the bow and shot her and, and uh, managed to, to get that deer. And when I went to register it, I couldn't find a station that would register it. There were gas stations that had those familiar red signs that say deer registration. I took the this deer in there and the, the guy, the older gentleman, uh, probably my age uh, now said, uh, I said, I don't want to register a deer. And he very disdainfully, he said, no, we just do the big stuff during gun season. And, and so they didn't register, um, you know, bow kills. And I said, well, how do I register? He said, oh, you go, call the warden. So I called the warden, went to his house and he tagged the deer. And that deer um, was one of about 7,000 bow killed deer that year, 1972. Fast forward to now, and he probably killed 7,000 a week yeah. during the bow season. Almost a hundred thousand statewide. Yeah. Yeah. During, during the bow season and gun season now, 200,000 and change. Uh, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me. I do. Um, you keep talking. I'm going to look them up. Yeah. Back in the uh, in the mid-70s right. on our land, and that's really the only place we have hunted up there um, once we acquired that land, we always saw deer. We never saw a lot of deer, but we pretty much see the same number of deer uh, every year, only a few during the gun season. My son is bow hunting and he sees more during that time because, you know, they um, they travel around a lot, especially during the rut. I think in the, that same year, 75, I bow hunted that, that land, did not kill a deer, but I saw five different bucks in the span of two weeks. And I went, oh, this is interesting. You know, there, there are deer around here. Um, then... Gosh. Then along came the, the 90s um, when deer populations just went uh, off the off the charts in southern Wisconsin. 
and central Wisconsin and guys of your generation, uh, many who have only hunted in that, uh, started hunting in that time period. And now they don't see as many deer. They say, oh, where are all the deer? I used to see 50 or 100 deer uh, a, a day. That's way too many deer to see in a, a day or a season or a year, for goodness sake. Um, and I, I don't have all the answers to why deer numbers have declined since then here in Wisconsin, but they they have they are not as abundant as they used to be, but there's still plenty of deer. And in some areas, too many deer. Um, Absolutely. And, and, and we, hunters aren't, aren't taking enough of them. So I, I don't know. That's rambling all over the place. No, but. that's right. Do you remember, this is a side note for me because I'm interested in this stuff. I talk with Ted Nugent about every day about archery history. Do you remember what kind of bow you used when you first started there in 72? I had a herder's recurve. Wow. And um, then I switched to a, a Joy Valley archery compound made in lacrosse. I can't remember the guy's name, but um, gentleman from lacrosse from the Joy Valley archery. I think his wife's name was Joy. <laughs> um, had the little tiny um, wheels on them, you know. Um, then what did I go Is to? Is that what you shot the deer with? The one on the railroad tracks? No, that was the recurve. Well, you shot it with the recurve. Oh yeah, it was a herder's recurve. Wow. And um, there were no sights in those days. Nope. Just what I did, I I I have finger tabs, you know, and um, I used to hunt rabbits when I was a kid. Never killed many. I might have hit one, you know, in all those days. But I was an instinct shooter, and at ten yards, I'm sorry, you can hit a deer, you know, because you're. You know, your target is like that and at 10 yards. I hope you can hit that with uh, with no sights on the bow. And then when I started to get serious about bow hunting, I took a strip of foam and I taped it to the bow and I took hat pins and I stuck them in the foam and I still had no peep or no uh, nothing on the string, but I anchored in the same place all the time and I would put that pin, you know, I had a 10 yard, a 20 and a 30 yard pin. I don't think I ever shot a deer at 30 yards back then. Uh, but I, I shot a couple deer that way. And then, then to the Joy Valley archery bow and then, uh, uh Darton. Darton. That was my first bow. My yeah. the first one that I bought was a Darton. Yeah. Okay. And I got that from Trig Asin, who was with Darton at the time. And then he went to another company, and I think he set me up with uh, Forge Archery, sure. Steve Pagel. Yep. And I still have a Forge, and I uh, I have a Forge, and I had a um, uh, a Matthews uh, Switchback. Yep. I actually liked the Forge better than the Matthews, and my son asked me about. 10 years ago, he said, have you got a bow lying around you don't use? And I said, yeah, I got this Matthew switchback. And that's what he's shooting. <laughs> that's what he's shooting. That's what he's shooting. I mean, you know, and when he takes it to, to shops to get get new arrows or he takes it to a range, um, sometimes uh, people there will say, boy, you know, uh, I wish I had kept my switchback. Yeah. Or I know a lot of people who wish they had that bow. You know, he's killed several deer with it in the last few years. 
That's that's amazing because we always look back on that. My first one was I bought it at Falls Archery in Menominee Falls. I believe it was mm-hmm. 1986. And just a quick story there. The guy who sold me that bow, I just saw him at the archery trade show here last week. Billy Goodrow, he was a, he was a pro tech there. And it was, uh-huh. a, it was a dart and trail master. And I thought, man, this is like the ticket, you know? I mean, like it was a compound bow. I think it was like 50% lead. I, now I still got it. Uh, but yeah. that, that was pretty cool. Um, another interesting thing. Okay, so you were one of the pioneers shooting with a recurve. Not too many guys did that. I mean, it was very, even in the 70s, compound bows were starting to get in there and get more popular. But you hunted the big woods. What kind of changes have you seen, uh, you know, topographically? Um, is there as much logging up there as there used to be? Because I know that was a big catalyst for not only deer, but for grouse and snowshoe hares. And we talked about this last week and I haven't seen a snowshoe hare in probably 30 years. Um, has that changed deer hunting up there as far as how the land is being managed? Well, if, if you're talking public land and, and you are, as far as uh, forest, you know, large right. scale forest management is concerned, I've really not had my finger on the pulse of what's going on up there for, for years. But I can tell you on our private land, it has not been logged. It was selectively logged 50 years ago. And that is um, taking out some big um, oak. I'm looking at diameter of stump, uh, oak and maple. And um, the aspen in that area just regenerated like crazy. And it was great grouse cover. It was good snowshoe hare habitat. Um, I shot 20 or 30 snowshoes a year back then. Uh, haven't seen one now in decades. The, the, that land has changed. Um, our woods are more mature now, and we are looking at ways to hold deer because we know they come through there. We see them, but um, we don't have as... We don't have the heavy brush bedding areas that we used to have. And that's something my son is working on. Um, so, yeah, I, I I don't know how to answer that, Dan, sure. really, on uh, a global sense as far as the North Woods are concerned. Yeah. What about um, predation? You're looking at larger population of black bears. We have wolves now, coyotes. What have you seen over the years in regards to that and uh, maybe because I know a lot of guys up there, we, I hunted the Schwamigan for over 20 years and we stopped hunting basically because the baiting got so bad and we were starting to run into people and like, this isn't funny anymore. We're driving up from, you know, Richfield and it's like, this is too long of a drive. Um, but I know now today guys are complaining, yeah, the wolves are killing them all. Well, I know that's not the case. I do know the wolf situation. What are your thoughts on, I, I would say predators up there, especially I would say wolves and black bears. We see black, we see all three, uh, at all four. If you go to Bobcats, we see an occasional coyote, uh, rare but occasional wolf, uh, black bear now and then shows up on a trail cam. And my son's got uh, cutty back, cutty length trail cameras throughout the property. Uh, I think he's got like a dozen, and they're all linked with a to, to a hub that sends it to his phone. And he'll send me photos of, oh, there's uh. There's Gandalf. He has, somebody got Gandalf this year, but he was watching this deer for a couple of years. Um, and uh, so he he picks up uh, those predators on the trail camera, the four that I mentioned. I don't know that they're any more abundant 
Uh, and our property is just outside of Washburn, so it's within two miles of Lake Superior. And these are city deer that we see, you know, that they go down into town, into the parks in the in the winter, this time of year. Um, and, and still a wolf occasionally will cross the property, so we know that they're there. I, I don't hunt out in the, uh, uh, the barrens anymore, out in the forest. I, I have friends who do. A friend of mine, and you ought to get Todd uh, Chingo on, on the show sometime. I don't know if you know him, but... I uh, don't know Todd. Yeah, Todd is the manager of the American in Ashland. Mm-hmm. And I can put you in touch with him. He hunts the Shawamigan, and he, uh, he has uh, a bunch of friends who come up for the antlerless hunt, and they kill deer every year. But I believe they are baiting uh, when they do that. Um, during the regular season, I don't think he is, um, but but he has, you know, he has a lot more experience and uh, time in the woods in that area than I do. And he's uh, he's about your age, I'd say. So he's been he's been around, sure. and he's seen the changes. Matt. Okay, guys, we're going to take a break, and we're going to show some love for one of our sponsors, and that is Hunt Stand. I've been using this for a couple years now, and I'm not a technology guy, but this is extraordinarily helpful. It has really taken my hunting game to the next level, especially for scouting and especially understanding how deer are behaving the way they're behaving on a particular week or month on the properties I hunt. So I'm going to give you a couple examples. There's so much packed into this app, I'm not going to be able to tell you about them today. You're just going to have to take a look at it for yourself. I have the HuntStand Pro version. There's two, two segments here that are extraordinarily helpful. The one, I mean, there's a lot, but the one is the property info. Yes, there's a lot of apps out there with property info. This one will show us precise property lines, and this is especially important when you're hunting near small, on small properties and near public land. That's just one example. The big one that I use, there's two actually. One is called the Hunt Zone. This one has saved me many times basically is it's a zone that you put over the top of your hunting property it will show you real time how the wind is affecting or how the wind is blowing predominantly on that particular day and the weather is is really nice because it's going to tell you the barometric pressure the wind visibility gusts cloud cover precipitation humidity that's big but also you can go to there's a so lunar um, tab it will tell you sunrise, moonrise, overhead, moonset, and it actually gives you peak activity time. Very helpful, and you can plan that out through the week. So if you want to make the most of your hunting adventures, download the Hunt Stand app right now. You will not be disappointed. You can find it in the App Store or go right to their website, HuntStand.com. Let's, then, let's switch it then, Dan, to... Um just your career. How did you get into the the television thing and um, outdoor Wisconsin? I know you did it for a long time. Um, I know your background. Um, you, you have a PhD in French, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, <laughs> from Rice University. How did how did you get into TV and specifically um, 
outdoors when it was there wasn't too much of it really back then. There was some. Uh, we we saw some programs. I mean, me- I remember American Sportsman with Kirk Gowdy that was going in the '60s and even into the '70s. But we didn't see the the industry, especially deer and deer hunting. Deer and deer hunting kickstarted the whitetail industry in '77. So you were starting before that. Um, what drew you to what drew you to outdoor television? Well, I started writing for outdoor magazines in the 70s. Um, I actually, when I was 12 and I grew up in Western New York State, I wrote a, a brief um, summary of road kills that we found on the road when going hunting and fishing and, and uh, got it published in uh, New York State Conservationist back in, <laughs> I don't know, 60 or 61, something like that. And I always wanted to be an outdoor writer. I read the big three magazines, which you know what yep. they are, but people today may not. It's a uh, field and stream, outdoor life and sports afield. And I would read those magazines every month. I, I had favorite writers in each one. And I wanted to do that kind of writing. And uh, I shot a deer that was a natural story. I would missed this buck in the morning and then went back in the afternoon and actually killed the same deer and realized after the fact as i was skinning the deer that i had hit him in the morning because there was i had hit him just above the spine there were there was a uh and i was shooting a 12 gauge shotgun uh there was a slug hole uh that when you get the skin opened up there were two slug holes right there on either side of the spine just above the the backbone if i had been a couple inches lower i'd have killed that deer with a first shot and never got a story out of it anyway i wrote this story sent it to outdoor life magazine and they bought it and i couldn't believe it i thought well that's cool and they paid me 300 dollars back then which was a lot of money and it's still good money for some i don't think i'm paying that today no i'm just kidding yeah well (laughs) you know and i wrote for game and fish for years i started with them in the eight in the 80s And um, I'm not writing for them now. And I, I, I think they're still paying, you know, 150 or yep. $200. Per store. <laughs> anyway, so I wanted to do this. And uh, <clears throat> then I had the opportunity to move to Wisconsin to teach at Northland College up on Lake Superior. And um, there's a long story behind that that uh, I'll shorten. They had sent me uh, information about the school. I visited. I wasn't terribly impressed. Uh, and then they sent me the college catalog for 1972. And when you open the catalog there and the inside of the front cover was a picture of Mike Brasick, who was graduating the year before in his cap and gown, standing on the Bayfield dock on commencement day, holding live, still live, the world record brown trout. Wow. And I said, that must be the place. <laughs> and so, I mean, there are other factors, but that got me to northern Wisconsin. Uh, then I was writing for magazines. I wrote for Tom Petrie's um, Wisconsin Sportsman. Yeah. I was a Northwest field editor. And at my first Outdoor Writers Association of America meeting in 1984 in Traverse City, uh, Don Johnson was there. And I had applied for his job because he was retiring. With this, was it the Sentinel it. or the Journal? That was the Sentinel. Sentinel Terry yes. Cooper. It was yep. between me and Cooper. Terry got the job. They told me later because he had reporting. You know, he was a journalist. I was a teacher. I had taught journalism, but I had never worked as a reporter. And I wrote features 
they wanted a journalist. So Coper got Johnson's job. Don told me for years, he said, boy, you're, you're lucky you didn't get that job. It was a terrible job. I said, yeah, it was really terrible. They sent you to Africa. They sent you to Argentina to shoot doves, you know, uh, to Alaska. You know, what was, what's wrong with that? It's like, you know, you get this all the time. I'm sure all you do is hunt and fish and you have a great time, you know, well, there's a lot more behind anyway. So Johnson tells me there's this TV station in Milwaukee is looking for somebody to host an outdoor show. And I said, that's nice. And he said, no, you got to give them a call. So on my way home to Washburn from Traverse City, I stopped in Iron River at a phone booth. And I called Jack Abrams, who was the number, the guy who was uh, my, my contact at Channel 10 in Milwaukee, who later became my director. And we worked together for almost 30 years. And he, I told him who I was, that Don Johnson had told me uh, to call him. And he said, well, when can you come down for an audition? And it was a couple of weeks later, I went down for an audition and he called me back a week or two after that. And he said, we want you to host the show. We'll pay you a hundred dollars a week. And, uh, and, uh, and gas dollars a week and all the roadkill you can eat. Really a hundred dollars <laughs> a week and, uh, and, uh, gas money. And of course the gas money was more driving from Washburn to, uh, that's Milwaukee. Like, for people who don't know that's from one end of the state to the other. Basically. 350 miles. So I commuted for the first season. We shot a bunch of shows that summer and I thought, well, you know, We'll bass fish, we'll walleye fish, we'll go deer hunting, uh, we'll go grouse hunting, and this show might last a year or two. We'll run out of things to do. Well, as you know, your, your magazine is still going. How many stories can you write about deer hunting, for crying out loud? <laughs> and you've been doing it for Ever. all these years. Yep. Well, that's the same same thing with the outdoor show. And so it turned out that, you know, you can fish for bass this way or that way, top water, uh uh, deep water, uh, walleyes in the weeds, walleyes on the rocks, walleyes pre-spawn, post-spawn, fall, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and then there are all the people. I mean, I have had the opportunity to hunt and fish and paddle a canoe with some of the most uh, interesting people in the state. And, and then people would tell me, oh, you got to meet my uncle. He makes birch bark canoes. Or you got to join this guy. They camp out in the winter. Um, and, and we did a show with you know, all those people and one thing leads to another. And here we are at 35, 30. Did you, did you line up all those trips and all those stories or were, were they telling you, we need you to do this or that? Well, uh, the folks at the Milwaukee PBS, um, our city folks, and, uh, they're, they're not outdoors people. They're few of the, uh, technical staff, uh, videographers actually, did some hunting and fishing. And so they, they had some contacts and it was two engineers at the station. One is deceased. Now the other is retired, but they watched uh, Fred Trost show yep. uh, Michigan out of doors. And then, uh, well, actually it was Morton F and then Fred Trost and then Bob Garner, but they said, we can do a show like this. And so they're the ones who came up with the idea. Um, Ken Kobelars and Mike Balin and, uh, they planted the seed in uh, the mind of Jack Abrams, my director, and they did a, um, what do they call it? A, uh, a pilot. They did a pilot with um, a fellow who took a job out of state afterwards. Otherwise he'd probably still be hosting the show. 
and they got you know letters real hard copy of letters postcards and letters they got a whole bag full of letters from people saying oh that's a great show and that's when they decided to do you know to make a series out of it rather than just a one-off special so um you got all the plum ones too because i remember test my memory here because it would be like dan would come out and he'd say you know welcome to outdoor wisconsin today linda sleeslick is going to be doing some boring thing at nature research nature <laughs> Uh, nature center tom newbar is going to try to back in a boat at lake pewaukee and i get to go deer hunting <laughs> yeah <laughs> you always got the good ones i'm going rabbit hunting you know and it, but so they would tell you dan we want you to go up to wherever whatever you were doing that day or and, and how many shows did you did you produce one a week was it was it 52 or was it less than that for a year the first two years we did 52 wow one a week and got them on the air. We finished editing the show on Tuesday and it aired on Thursday. We shot my bridges, what we called bridges, the opens, yep. the segues, the inter introduction to each segment uh, on Monday and edited Tuesday, put it up on the satellite by Wednesday because other stations pulled it down and aired it. <clears throat> and then it aired on Thursday. Um, I came up with a lot of the ideas. Um, each individual producer, you mentioned Linda Seeslick, uh, Tom Newbauer, Nancy Frank was on oh, yeah. for years. Yep. She and I did a cookbook. And after... There's another guy who was always on doing the White River rafting with the cowboy hat. I yeah, can... <laughs> Larry Bandy. Larry Bandy. Yep. He was yep. on there for a while. Jim Denomi, uh, Sharon Morrissey. Oh, gosh. And then in more recent years, Judy Nugent got on there with us for a while and um elizabeth kramer and i may be forgetting one or two but um each producer was expected to come up with uh, his or her own ideas and and the folks at the station would get calls or they would just get wind of uh, something like they'd read a, a story in the paper or in the magazine oh you ought to go do this or do that and in my case, I tried to line up, uh, I didn't do them all, but I lined up as many as, as uh, I could. And because I was, now Tom is a hunter as well as a fisherman, but he's more of an angler. And early on, we decided, that is Jack and I, my producer, and I decided that I should do most or all of the hunting segments because there are laws, there are ethics, and there's safety concerns, and we don't want to put camera crews at risk. We don't want to uh, portray anything that's illegal or unethical or dangerous. And so I won't say that I was 100%. 100% legal, yes. 100% safe and ethical. You know, once in a while, we'd get a, a letter or an email or a call from somebody. Like I walked up a ladder stand carrying a bowl one okay. time okay yeah yeah i mean you know we all did that back in the day right um, when i started deer hunting i shot my first deer out of a tree in new york in the in the 60s there were no tree stands yeah, i right. climbed the tree and wedged myself in <laughs> and i fell climbing down and and uh you know now look at safety we have lifelines we have safety harnesses we have ladder stands that are you know secured to the tree um 
and still people fall because there are more hunters and more people are hunting out of trees. Um, I think that's, there's a lot, there are a lot more accidents from tree stand falls than gunshot wounds in, uh, uh, I think in most states now. Absolutely. Okay. I want to, I want to wrap, we, we could talk for hours. I could talk for hours <laughs> with you, but how, what happened then? Because I know that's how it started and then it became a juggernaut. You're the face of that show. I mean, you get 10 years into that thing, you go to the Milwaukee uh, Sentinel Sports Show, and there's Dan Small. H- how did that feel? How did you deal with that uh, that rise to, I mean, if you're in Wisconsin, you recognize your voice, you recognize your face. You're, like I said, you were the face of outdoor Wisconsin. How did you, how did you handle that, and how did, it, uh, how did it go for the next three decades? It was unusual it was strange it was new to me because uh i mean you may think that i'm an outgoing guy but i'm pretty private you know um even though i was a college teacher and i was comfortable in front of groups talking to people um when you um when you you know when the when the job is done i like to go home and kick back and maybe hunt rabbits or deer on my own and not have a camera crew around and when I'm going someplace you know my wife still says once in a while well go be damn small you know go turn that that personality on um it it was uh it still is remarkable to me that people know me know the show recognize my voice recognize uh the the theme song and the the logo and and the other producers after all these years um it's very gratifying it's uh you know, one year, oh, not too long ago, <clears throat> I was at the sports show and we were setting up and I still do this now, but you know, I'm, I don't know how many more years I'm going to do it. And this was 10, 10 years ago, at least that I was setting up the show with my good friend, Brad Karstad, who was, he became my roadie for a number of years. He had a, a jet powered canoe that he, his dad designed that he put back into production. And so he would come to the show he and I, and we would set up his canoe and my booth and people would buy tickets. We'd raffle off a canoe and he'd sell a few and that kind of thing. And we were setting up the booth one day. And uh, I said to Brad, man, I don't know how many more years I want to do this. And a lady comes up to the booth and she says, my brother's dog knows you. And I said, (laughs) okay, what's the story? She said, when your theme song comes on, this black lab that is not a hunter. Okay. It's a house dog runs from the kitchen into the living room, sits down and watches TV. And if you're pheasant hunting and somebody shoots a bird, the dog runs around and barks because he wants to retreat. And when she left, I turned to Brad and I said, I mean, how many more stories are there like this that we don't hear? And and one other one I'll share with you. That is awesome. At another show, a guy comes up to me and he's got a nine or 10 year old kid with him and a couple others. And it's like, he's herding cats. Okay. And you know what the sports show is like oh, yeah. you've been here for years. Uh, and he says, I don't have a lot of time, but I want to thank you. And I knew what was coming, but I said, what for? And he said, my dad didn't hunt. My grandfather didn't hunt, but watching your show got me started hunting and fishing. And I am trying to pass that tradition on to my son and his friends. And you know, that's what I'm thanking you for. And I, I choke up every time I tell this story and I turned to Brad and I said, that's why we do this, you know, and that's why I'm still doing it, Dan. 
hundred percent. I'm sure you get the same kind of thing, you know. I do, but um, like, and I said with all sincerity, watching you, like I said, you're one of my, like, that's what I want to do. You know, I, yeah. I want to do, I want to do something like that. You know, yeah. and uh, it is very humbling. It is very humbling. Um, not it's. I don't think it's. And as you explained, it's not an ego thing. It's like what I'm doing is making a difference. Um, yeah. p- people. <clears throat> People are maybe enjoying the outdoors more. Maybe they're going hunting. Um, and I think I, I derive great satisfaction from that as well. Absolutely. And yeah, I think making a difference and trying to pass on our traditions to the next generation, that's the biggest legacy we can leave. And I think it's critical now because my generation, you know, I'm pushing 80 years old. Okay. Okay. Guys I know my age are either dead or they've stopped hunting and fishing because they can't do it anymore. I can still get around. I went rabbit hunting on uh, on Sunday with uh, Ozzy and he got a rabbit and I didn't Sweet. I didn't get a shot. But, Actually, you know, I saw your photos on Facebook. You cut yeah, that up. you look, cut that up very nicely, by the way. Yeah, well, that was a different rabbit. From, <laughs> okay. uh, I was like, that wasn't shot up very much. <laughs> no, and actually his wasn't shot up either. You know, he was using my uh, my eight seventy twenty gauge with seven and a half shot and open choke. You know and he put enough pellets into it to kill the kill the rabbit and didn't break a bone on it, which is cool, you know. But anyway, um, where am I going with this? Uh, he just got into hunting and he's been deer hunting, turkey hunting, and now rabbit hunting with me. And he takes all the learn to hunt uh, classes that he can. And I think uh, as as my generation ages out, and you guys, your generation is really carrying the ball now you've got to keep doing what we've been doing. And that is telling people, showing people, writing about hunting and fishing and conservation and the ethical, safe, and, you know, uh, responsible way of doing these sports and why it's so important. Hunters pay for conservation. You know that. Yep. Um, and, and so, I mean, that's the message I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here, but I think we all need to go, uh, take uh, young people and new hunters out and uh, try to introduce them to the sports and, and show them that it's a lot more than just uh, bagging a big buck and uh, putting one on the wall and, uh, uh, you know, bragging about it and posting your pictures on Facebook. Uh, you know, there's so much more to the tradition. And, you know, we, like you said, we could go on. I could, I could talk for hours about, uh, people of, of your generation and younger don't know how to hunt deer because they they never they go from the truck to the box blind that's right and back to the truck you know that's, um that's right 100 percent. well dan very inspirational thank you so much it has been such an honor to talk to you here for almost an hour um <laughs> and i would love to do it again sometime let's do it yeah sounds meanwhile good. carry on you're doing a great job i appreciate your your efforts and uh, uh i hope you uh I, you know, hope you continue doing this for a long time. I'm going to do it as long as I can. There you go. (laughs) All right. Thank you, Dan. For Dan Small, this has been a great episode of Deer Talk Now. Again, like, subscribe wherever you're uh, listening to this or watching this. And if you want to find out where you can listen to them all or watch them all, just go to our website, deerandeerhunting.com and click on the Deer Talk Now link. Again, we'll catch you next week for another episode of Deer Talk Now. This episode is brought to you by Drop Tine Spirits and their premium 12-point bourbon whiskey. 
The story of Droptine's finest bourbon starts with being double barrel aged. What this means is they first aged the bourbon in new charred oak barrels in America's heartland, then sent it to California to be finished in the salt air of the Pacific in the finest brandy barrels. Finishing their bourbon in brandy barrels was the choice of many trials to find flavors as unique as the Droptine deer. They wanted a bourbon that is not only warm to the palate, but it would sip smoothly and leave notes of fruit behind. They found the perfect brandy barrels in the Russian River Valley near Sonoma, California, and what they created is a bourbon whiskey that exhibits a sweet, floral, almost honey-like aroma balanced by caramel, toasted wood, brown sugar, and toffee. 12-point bourbon is only available online. To get a taste for yourself after the hunt, visit droptime.com. Deer Talk Now is also brought to you by HuntStand and the new HuntStand Pro app. Let me tell you, I've been using the HuntStand app for a couple seasons now, and I can honestly say it has changed the way I hunt. There's no more guessing on wind direction, property lines, and stand locations. The app takes my hunting to precise new levels that help me be more successful. The new HuntStand Pro app unlocks unlimited property data on a nationwide basis, including detailed property boundaries throughout the United States and most of Canada, including property owners' names in the United States with detailed ownership information. You can also access detailed public land maps and search for properties on a county, state, or province level. There are so many features that also help you dial in on the best spots based on weather conditions. For more information, visit the App Store or log on to HuntStand.com. This podcast is brought to you by Cuddyback Cameras. I'm going to tell you guys, I've known Mark Cuddyback personally for over 20 years, and I've been using those cameras for over 18 years on Deer and Deer Hunting TV. The recent technology in the past few years has absolutely blown me away. And for those of you who don't have great cell coverage where you hunt, Cuddyback's ability to daisy chain from one camera to another camera with new CuddyLink technology is an absolute lifesaver. With the ability to connect 24 cameras, I place one home base camera at the edge of my property, swap that card out just once a month, and I get a look at all the activity on my entire property. My deer stay unpressured and the conditions are prime for opening day of bow season. For those of you who have the luxury of cell service, check out their new Cuddyback Tracks technology. This is game changing. For more information, go to cuddyback.com. Deer Talk is also brought to you by Traditions Firearms, a family-owned business and inventor of the new Nitro Fire muzzleloader. When owner and president Tom Hall and his daughter Allison first showed me the Nitro Fire system, I was immediately impressed that it is not only more convenient than conventional muzzleloaders, but it is safer. The ability to quickly remove the powder charge is a big deal, such as when crossing a fence, climbing into or out of a tree stand, transporting your rifle in a truck or an ATV, or when hiking rough hills, wading creeks, or plunging through swamps. I've used the Nitro Fire on numerous deer and deer hunting TV hunts over the past two years, and I find it safe, accurate, and very dependable. The gun is available in numerous configurations. To learn more, visit traditionsfirearms.com. The Deer Talk Now podcast is also brought to you by Apex Outdoor Rewards. Hit record and win rewards. Enter the Apex Whitetail Challenge in your state for your opportunity to win big cash. Enter today and get a 4K camera absolutely free. 
that's a $300 value absolutely free. There are some serious rewards here, guys, so be sure to enter in your state. Who would have thought your next buck could be putting money in your pocket? Reserve your spot today at apexoutdoorrewards.com. The Deer Talk Now podcast is also brought to you by Full Range Mounting Systems. These mounting systems are a great way to manage all of your mounts in a stylish and organized manner. We are using their pedestal mount here on the podcast set for two shoulder mounts, and it looks just awesome. Be sure to check out all their mounting solutions at fullrangesystems.com. And finally, Deer Talk Now is brought to you by 10 Point Crossbow Technologies. Hey, if you've watched me on Deer and Deer Hunting TV, you know that I'm an equal opportunity bow hunter, and for most of the past decade, that has also included crossbows. In fact, I shot my first crossbow deer with a 10 point over 12 years ago. And to say that I've been impressed with their technology is an understatement. This year, I'm shooting the new Nitro 505, the fastest crossbow in the world. It is light, compact, and includes the revolutionary AccuSlide cocking and decocking technology. Whether I'm in a tree stand, ground blind, or spot and stalk hunting, I know the Nitro 505 is up to any challenge. Check one out at a dealer near you or log on to 10pointcrossbows.com for more information.